the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the new man behind the board tonight. Science advisor Matt Moniz is taking over for the silent assassin Matt Costa, who has the night off tonight. And I don't know if that's ever happened before. I don't think there's ever been a night off for the silent assassin. I was thinking about it. There was one show when he was running a little bit late getting here, and we had to do things on our own. And then there was another night where uh, we actually simulcast Beyond Reality Radio, uh, over WBSM with Jason and Grant from Ghost Hunters, and I sat behind the board uh, and ran ran it for that show. But of course, <laughs> I had Matt Costa sitting right across from me to make sure that nothing went wrong. Tonight we're working off a list of instructions that he left for us. So uh, we've got numerous paperwork and the crash course that he gave us at the end of last week's show. And so far, so good. I mean, I think we're on the air. Uh, at the very least, we're broadcasting on Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com, so you can see the cameras that are going on in the studio there, and you can actually see the train wreck that will be the show tonight. And uh, also, uh, we're hoping that we're broadcasting on WBSM, so <laughs> if we're if you can't hear us on the radio, then obviously you're doing something wrong. It's not us. But uh, we've got a great night for you tonight. We have Chris Balzano joining us, our show's content director and a frequent contributor to the program. We're going to be talking about a wide variety of things tonight, uh, starting in the first hour with the murder myth, which is something that Chris has been working on. Uh, and I don't really know that much about this project that he's been working on. It, it, he's referenced it a few times in the past, uh, but I don't really know that much about it. And, and he and I talk quite frequently. So I'm excited to find out what it is that he's been uh, putting together here. And we'll talk about that in the first hour. And coming up in the second hour, we'll talk about Harry Potter. So from murderers to Harry Potter, it's a, it's a natural progression, I guess. Uh, and I don't know anything about Harry Potter, so we'll ha- we're gonna, I'm bringing in a couple ringers who are going to uh, actually step in for me and, and, and provide some Harry Potter info. Basically, what I'll do is I'll look to them and be like, what's a muggle? I don't know what that means. And they can kind of like whisper in my ear or something. We'll figure it out as we go along. But it'll be a fun night. At the very least, stay tuned to see what happens when we try to actually run the control stuff here on in the Spooky Studio. I- I'm excited. Are you excited, Moniz? Uh, I, I got a bit of... Tension going on. <laughs> well, of course, you're the one that's thrown into the hot seat. Uh, but, you know, you have some experience. So I'm confident in your abilities. It's not my first time behind a board. All right. But it is your first time behind the uh, WBSM computer. That's what yeah. I'm more worried about. <laughs> I know you got the board part down. Yeah, the board's easy. Uh, all this computer stuff that they've got going on. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, a different, different story. story. Yeah. <laughs> and just remember that when, when the Silent Assassin was getting ready to, to run the controls for the show, um, he had like three months training on that computer. He was coming in on Monday nights doing the sports show. Uh, and then he went to Connecticut School of Broadcasting not long after the show started. So, you know, he, he had all kinds of uh, training. Well, whereas you're just being thrown into it with some sheets of paper. So, hey, good luck to you. Well, it's not that undifferent from some of the scientific instrumentation I use that use, you know, similar types of uh, commands to do things. So. I'm well, not totally out of my element, but uh, finding what I want in this menagerie of windows is going to be interesting. 
Well, normally uh, I have to do the heavy lifting of the show, you know, as the host, but tonight I think uh, more of the burden falls on you. That's for sure. I'll do what I can, kid. All right. Well, let's get right into it with our guest, Chris Balzano, who's going to be talking to us about the murder myth. And, uh, Chris, I have to say, you know, we stepped outside the normal paranormal discussion that we have here on the show uh, a few weeks ago with Thomas Sheridan when we talked about uh, the puzzling people, the psychopaths. And, uh, yeah, see, there we go. That's, you know, that was going to happen. Just, uh, <laughs> we'll talk it through on the air. Just hit, uh, switch that one down to B. Um, yeah, is that down to B? All right, yeah. there you go. And I think that the button might be off, but whatever. We'll just, we'll, we'll play through it. Uh, Chris, so anyway, I, I was saying that we had Thomas Sheridan on talking about the, the puzzling people, the, the, uh, mind of the psychopath. And, Although it wasn't paranormal discussion, it generated a lot of discussion in the chat room, and it also, I received a number of emails, including one I received this week. I didn't get permission to read it on the air, so I won't actually do that, but just the gist of it was uh, this woman told us that she had an issue with one of these psychopaths, and she didn't really understand what was happening to her, and listening to that show made her feel better. Uh, so the fact that we can actually provide a service for some people when we talk about these things makes it all the more important to step out there uh, and, and do it. I want to know... Why you've been studying so much time, uh, putting so much time studying murderers? Well, it um, it all kind of goes back. Hello, by the way. Hello. Um, it all kind of you kind don't of you don't get back. formal introductions, by the way, Chris, when you're part of the show anymore. I just throw it to you. I know, I know. I'm like, what the hell, Chris Balzano? Is he? Not even like an intro, but whatever. You know. You, you used to right. get a theme song. You used to have your own theme song, and we did away with that, I guess. I know. I had two theme songs too. Anyway, but that that, that uh, here's Chris Balzano. All right, so. Um, <laughs> Uh, for me, it all kind of goes back to um, a night I was sleeping over at my parents' house. It was before I was married, so it has to be at least 15 years ago. My parents live in Nashua, New Hampshire. And right before I went to bed, I was watching a documentary on the Zodiac. And the Zodiac is, I mean, I've always been fascinated, as fascinated with serial killers, with um, with kind of, of crime, as much as the, the paranormal throughout my life. So I'm watching this documentary, you know, and we say goodnight, and I go into my parents' room, and, you know, by that time I was pretty much a a, a, a hardcore resident of Boston where, I, you know, I fell asleep to the sound of sirens and the sound of, like, people outside biffing and banging, and they live in the middle of the woods. And so everything was completely still, everything was completely dark, and I'm sitting there, and I am completely 100% convinced the Zodiac is outside my window. Now, I know this makes no logical sense whatsoever, right? The Zodiac is someone who was active 30 years before that on the West Coast. You know, presumably he's dead. Um, there's no possible explanation for why he should be outside my window. I wouldn't even fit his victimology. Outside my window, getting ready to come through the window, which is something he would never do, and kill me. <clears throat> and I'm sitting there completely frozen in terror. Not by demons, not by things under the couch, not by, you know, demonic spirits, or by a serial killer who I know in my logical brain will never, ever harm me. And it's been something that's been rolling in my head now. You know, anyone who, who knows me knows that I, you know, I study myths, I study legend, I study folklore, like, and, and the paranormal is part of that to me. Well, there's this whole other kind of string of myths and this string of um, these kind of psychological scars we have, 
and these things we're willing to accept and these things that we willingly embrace that all have to do with murder and death. <clears throat> Excuse me, and it goes beyond just this kind of idea that, you know, we're all obsessed, like if it bleeds, it leads, we want to see the violence. There's this thing that goes down to our very core, which allows us to accept things which we know are not logical, um, which we know will never probably impact us. And yet we allow these things to drive us. We allow these things to kind of control um, control the way that we do things, control the way that we um, travel, the way that we kind of live our lives, the way we approach other people, um, kind of shutting ourselves off to some degree. And so I started to kind of, you know, after my last paranormal book, um, I decided to kind of like, all right, let me take a step back from the ghosts and take a step back from those kinds of things and just start kind of thinking about, what are these kind of murder myths that we're being fed? And then, of course, kind of going into the, the annals of, of, of folklore, the annals of urban, especially urban mythology, and kind of fleshing some of these things out and seeing, you know, not only what are they, like what are the most popular myths that drive us, that scare us, um, but also why do we feel that way about certain things? Well, I mean, one murder, I guess, one thing that always came up when I was younger uh, w- was the idea of kidnapping. I mean, you don't really hear that much about it these days. Uh, and as a parent, you know, we, you think we'd be more attuned to it. But when when we were kids, you know, we had uh, Adam Walsh and all these other stories from the 80s about kids that were being abducted and, and murdered. Uh, and that was something that I lived in constant fear of when I was younger. <laughs> you know, if I had just thought about it, I would have realized there's nothing about me that would ever make anybody want to kidnap me. Uh, but if they did, they'd murder me pretty quickly because they wouldn't be able to stand being around me. So, um, but I mean, that must be something that was always in the back of your mind too. That whole, you know, growing up in that era of terror that you had to stay right with your parents when you were in the mall. Right, and you know, we were um, we were raised. You and I are approximately the same age. We were raised in the era also of the satanic uh, cult craze. Mm-hmm. And so, not only were you going to be abducted for one reason or another. Um, you were going to be abducted because cults needed little kids to sacrifice, <clears throat> you know. And and there is no one who escaped their parents in an open place more than me. I mean, my mom used to freak out. To this day, she talks about how she's surprised I never was actually abducted by anybody because as soon as we hit Joe and Lash, boom, I was gone. And oh. she didn't see me till she left. And I would sometimes intentionally do it to scare myself for some reason, but I always found my way back, and that's, Kind of how now I can always find things. Like I always, I, I pride myself on that. And and what the numbers actually play out is that you know I had probably a better chance of being hit by lightning in Jordan Marsh than actually being abducted. Well, see, when I went to stores, I couldn't stand shopping. So in my skinnier days, I used to hang inside the clothing racks, the circular clothing racks, and just sit on oh, yeah. the bar in the middle. So for me to have been abducted, you know, they would have had to have been able to find me. Right, and, and and that was part of it, that hiding from your parents and then kind of bursting out because, you know, kind of lean it back to kind of the work that I've been doing, the very first <laughs> the very first kind of image that you're given um, as a child are these horrific abductions or these horrific murders that start, you know, before we know, before we can watch the news, before we know what a kidnapper is, we are fed these kind of, you know, what the Germans call Kinderwundertals, <laughs> which are... Um, these absolutely amazingly graphic fairy tales um, and life lessons that are passed on to us from an early age. And so, you know, I just kind of 
threw a question out there to, to get some responses for people who are like, what are fairy tales you remember? Every single one I got was one of violence. You know, no one really remembers. I think my wife said the the the, uh, the prince and the pea, or, or you know, which I, I which I think is a pretty nice one. But other than that, I mean, we are told from a very early age, if it's not the wolves that are going to eat you, then it's going to be um, the troll that lives under the bridge, or it's <coughs> or it's going to be a cough. <laughs> um, from, from a very early age. <coughs> We're taught as we can go to bed at night. Listen to us. Don't stray from the path. Don't talk to strangers because everyone in this world wants to kill you, including us, especially if we have a step parent. Mm. Well, I mean, that's the, the the problem with being raised with these these Grimm's fairy tales and uh, non Grimm's but Grimm fairy tales. There, there seem to have been uh, a recurring theme there of uh, you know the idea of you are going to be eaten you are going to be butchered uh but there seem to be an underlying moral behind them are these stories that we're talking about these kidnapping stories uh these different things that we'll get into later on too are they just our modern Grimm's fairy tales they completely are i mean they go back to the same themes they're no pun intended um wolves in cheap clothing um we haven't necessarily evolved from those stories what we've done is you know it's very easy to tell a child the story of Little Red Riding Hood. My son today, you know, this week said, I want to go to the Jedi Academy. Like, that's where, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm going to the Jedi Academy. He fully believes that there's a Jedi Academy. In the same way that we really believed that pigs could talk. And that if you didn't work hard and build your house the right way, you were going to be attacked by something which could potentially eat you unless you kind of turned your life around. Um, we honestly believed those things. And, and of course, as you go to kind of like our childhood and childhood of even our parents being shown these things in terms of like the Looney Tunes and the Warner Brothers cartoon, these once again an extension of that, you know, horrific tale, you know, those, those don't scare us when we're 20, when we're 30, when we're 40, because we no longer think that, you know, wolves are out there trying to kill us. You know, we know, we now know that, you know, if you don't, if you don't, you know, get your, stepmother upset and you're not hotter than she is, she won't send a person out to kill you. You know, we don't eat the candied house and therefore the witch doesn't, you know, try to fatten us up and eat us. So instead we have to be kind of jabbed uh, in a different way. And so what we have are these kind of, and they're not really modern, they're just modern adaptations of those really scary, um, you know, fairy tales where it's kids and they're just kind of dressed up for a modern world and for, uh, more importantly, an adult world. So when we see the outbreak of of mayhem that's happened, at least, I mean, I understand, you know, the crime waves that happened in the early part of the, the uh, 20th century, but really there just seems to be a lack of, of compassion for other human beings with some of the brutality that happened in the latter half of the 20th century and, and into this century. Uh, is there a reason why things just seem so much more heinous than they might have been in the past? We're giving things faster. Um, the crime rate, if you look at it, actually dropped severely in the 90s. Um, and if you look at the rate, so not the number of people, but rather the rate. If you look at the rate, it's actually, if you're talking in terms of murder, it's pretty constant. Um, it hasn't had these huge spikes and it hasn't had these huge drops. It's gone up. 
but it's gone up the same way that, um, you know, pretty much everything else sociologically has gone up. Um, and so the reason why we believe these things are true um, is that because we're constantly being fed these images that they are, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, <clears throat> I was just, you know, watching a documentary about cannibalistic serial killers. And the man who's uh, actually Jack Levine, who, you know, is a, uh, is down there in uh, Northeastern, made an excellent statement that most people don't recognize the difference between Jeffrey Dahmer and Hannibal Lecter. Like, they pretty much put them on the same level of not only the psychological things that would be to create that kind of monster, which are drastically different, but the fact one of them's real and one of them's fake. Yeah. Uh, people can't look at the movie of, let's say, The Zodiac, which was out a few years ago, and understand where the fact and the fiction is from that. So if you ask people, for example, well, how many people a year do you think die by a serial killer? Right? The number, how many people do you think die every year, died like in the past year from serial killers? Well, the question is how many do we know about? Well, right, and I'll I'll get into that kind of how these statistics are a little bit skewed because, you know, we don't know necessarily bodies that are not found, like how many missing people are actually murdered people and things like that. But the number is less than 200. Right? It's about, you know, if you take the statistics, about 174, which if you say it like that, if you say 174 people were killed by serial killers, that sounds like a really, really high number. But the fact of the matter is that those murders account for 0.002% of all the people who were killed. You can look at it this way. It's like two people per state capital per year. Right, <laughs> right, right. And it, which is really funny because if you look at a show, like let's say I've become obsessed a little bit with Criminal Minds lately. If you look at a show like that, you know, the average killer on that kills at least two or three over the course of the episode, and they catch one a week, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unless you're watching it on Ion, which is on, you know, five times a day. But still, they're, they're approximately catching one every three or four days who account for four or five murders. Like, that is completely unrealistic, but seems really logical when you, when you say it. Well, also, the television version of serial killers, um, they seem to get right to the point. You know, because there's only 44 minutes, you know, with commercials, there's, there's 60, but there's only 44 minutes of TV time, so they, they kind of get right to the point, but in actuality, aren't serial killers a little bit more methodical, uh, in, in the, in the hunt and in the, uh, in the actual kill? Excellent. So there you have your murder myth, kind of the big number one, and that's that serial killers are wicked smart. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, is that most of them are not. Um, you have kind of two, Different, you know, two different uh, killers, and these don't mix, which is another weird thing when you have someone like Hannibal Lecter or these kind of ultra, these uber serial killers that you're presented in, in kind of books and TV shows. Serial killers are either organized or disorganized. And what will happen is serial killers, there are many more disorganized serial killers than organized serial killers. But we feel as if they're really smart, they're intellectual, they're well planned out, and the majority of them aren't. And so you actually don't have a lot of methodical planning with the majority of those serial killers. And so they're actually caught pretty frequently, or, or they're caught you know, fairly regularly in terms of like in the number that they actually kill. 
and almost always it's by chance that they're caught. You know, even if you look at some of the kind of famous serial killers that are, that are, you know, we, we hold up, you know, like the, you know, top ten serial killers of all time, most of them are not caught by criminal profilers. They're not caught even by, you know, really, really extensive FBI or even local law enforcement work. They're caught because they make a mistake that trails them back, and then all of a sudden kind of the quilt starts to unravel, you know, and you really start to discover what you're looking for. Jeffrey Dahmer, they didn't stake his house out. You know, he was caught for one thing, and one thing was, and all of a sudden they start to discover more and more things. John Wayne Gacy, the same thing. Son of Sam, speeding ticket. You know, these are not people who were, um, you know, and I think a great example would be probably my most feared serial killer, which is Ramirez, who was killed, I mean, who was found because he became so arrogant because he thought Satan was protecting him. So there's really not this, the majority of serial killers are not these masterminds who commit all these horrendous crimes and after the 40th one they're caught. Most of them are extremely lucky. And most of them are mobile. Uh, the ones that, that are the most successful are the ones that are mobile. So if you look at someone you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, Walsh before, if you look at Lucas, if you look at Bundy, because they cross state lines, and of course we know this from um, we know this from the you know the the, um, the highway killings and in, uh, in, in Massachusetts. When you cross town lines, when you cross county lines, when you cross state lines, it becomes a lot harder to catch you. So the more mobile you are, you know it's not that you're really intelligent; it's that the bodies are dumped in different places and people can't get together to figure out what they've got. Well, let me ask you this, and this might be another one of those uh, myths that we're talking about. There's the belief, and, and we see it on television a lot with shows like Criminal Minds, that eventually uh, these serial killers want to be caught. And they make that mistake on purpose because they can only keep this up for so long, and after a while they just they, they want to be discovered, they want to be caught. Is there any truth to that? There are very few serial killers who were like that. Um, there were serial killers who showed remorse. There have been instances, very few instances, of serial killers who turned themselves in. Um, most of them, that becomes part of, and you go back to the sociopath part of it, most of them, be, that becomes part of uh, their need for power. It becomes part of their um, their desire to taunt the police. Um, more importantly, it becomes, for those who kill serial killers who aren't sociopaths or psychopaths, and you can be a serial killer without being either of those things, um, it becomes actually your way of, placing the guilt for what you've done onto someone else. So in other words, I gave up after five. You weren't able to catch me. That's why I committed ten more. And so so many serial killers who kind of all of a sudden start to present themselves to police don't do so because they genuinely want to be caught. And of course, there are exceptions to that rule, but the majority aren't. Is there also, uh, I I mean, are serial killers aware of each other and they're aware of what they're doing because one of one of my favorite movies of all time is is the frighteners uh, i don't know if you're familiar with that film oh, one of my favorite movies one and, of my favorite coach movies of all time and in that film of course johnny bartlett the serial killer in that movie is consciously aware of how many victims other serial killers have had and he's trying to one-up all of them is there mm-hmm. is there a degree of that because we see a lot of that portrayed in the media of of one serial killer trying to outdo another one yeah that's a I think that's much more in the mind of um, of the organized killer, mm-hmm. some uh, someone who part of the fantasy uh, is notoriety, part of the fantasy is belonging to that 
uh, fraternity of serial killers, and therefore they keep statistics. You know, the majority of organized killers, I shouldn't say the majority, many organized serial killers that they've come to contact with, that they've caught or they've, you know, been able to kind of track and, and get information from them, they discover press clippings not only on their murders, but on the murders of other people. They find, you know, bookshelves worth of books on serial killers and police techniques. And so they are very much, a, the organized serial killers would be very much aware of other serial killers, and even active serial killers. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I have a hard time wrapping my head around uh, how somebody can be that that sick to do this, not only once, but to do it multiple times. Uh, so maybe maybe this is another one of those myths that we hear that there there's some sort of release for the killer in in committing these murders that it's whether it in some cases it's psychological in some cases emotional some cases it's sexual but there's some kind of release that they have uh, with each victim I, is there a lot of uh, a lot of truth to that think of it this way that by definition <clears throat> a serial killer has to have a cooling off period. Right, so for example, the kids at Columbine aren't serial killers, they're mass murderers. They kill, they amass a lot of bodies in a very short amount of time. There's no cooling off period. <clears throat> well, that cooling off period can also be defined as a moment of satisfaction, a moment of release. So if you think of it like a pressure cooker, the pressure builds up, the pressure builds up, has to be released, is released, the serial killer is satisfied. Once again, keep in mind that's obviously intentionally a very sexually laced kind of uh, analogy, then it starts to build up again. And when it gets to its boiling point again, then the murder is committed. So there is a definite cooling-off period by definition for a CO killer. So there is a release. Well, obviously these murders are very traumatic and they're very uh, emotionally charged uh, for the for the killer and for the victim. And, and stepping into the, the paranormal realm for a minute... We don't seem to have a lot of reports of the modern-day serial killers' victims, you know, uh, coming back from the other side and giving kind of information. Obviously, you have psychics who can make, who feel that they can make connections with some of these victims, but uh, you know, there's not a lot of investigation uh, into, you know, current victims of, of serial killers of the, of the modern era. Is that kind of like the Jeff Belanger, you know, no fresh corpses rule, or is that just that we're not seeing them them tied together? Um, I would say that when those kinds of situations happen, so say, for example, um, you know, a group of really handsome and intelligent people go into this random BU dorm, <laughs> right, <laughs> where <laughs> where DeSalvo was supposed to, supposedly in a room that wasn't the room that, we, that those people were in, committed his crimes. Now, at that moment, as an investigator or as someone who's looking into that situation, you're not trying to get in contact with the victim as much as you're trying to get in contact with the killer themselves. Mm, but those handsome Why? people might have also made contact with the victims, or, or so they might have believed. Well, that's because they were incredibly intelligent and went about it the right way. <laughs> but and not because there were television them. cameras in the room. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think that, you know, it's sexier to get in contact, to try to get in contact with the, um, with the killer themselves. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I think that, but also keep in mind, you're, that would be assuming a level of intelligence post-death. So somebody can say, hey, remember me? I was killed by Manson. Well, <laughs> if the person didn't know who was that killed them, they wouldn't say they were killed by Charles Manson. You know, they wouldn't say, I'm a victim of a serial killer. 
Well, but I mean, you mentioned Manson, but that is one of those few cases where we do have that. The the Manson case, at least uh, according to David Omen, you know, the Manson victims are haunting that property and are aware of what happened to them. My first thing would be, okay, um, my second thing, <laughs> my second response would be, you know, are they aware of the context? In other words, they might have awareness, especially in that case in particular. I just threw that one out randomly, but we can talk about that one. Mm-hmm. Those victims were suffered, and so there were, there were moments where the murders themselves, you know, pre-murder, for most of them pre-murder, there was interaction. And so therefore they would remember that interaction. But for them to then turn around and be like, and do you know how that fit into Helter Skelter? Is that happening in that situation? No. Or do they just know that they were killed by these people? And maybe even they have their names. But if they have their names, to me, unless the names were said, that seems like, once again, that now getting into paranormal folklore, that, you know, that we get smarter or we get more knowledgeable about the events of our own death, post that death, like if, if we can gain that information, which I don't necessarily believe. So you don't believe in the uh, the idea of you know who did this to you and getting the confession you know the uh, the the clues from beyond the grave? Not if it's a random person, you know, and not if it's not if it's now someone says my mother killed me. Okay, you know my <laughs> my stepdaughter came up with an axe or you know came up with an axe and killed me. All right, there you go. Well, you knew that person, but to look at uh, someone who is is random in your life. And keep in mind, the majority of serial killers are random in these people's lives. Um, it might be one or two chance meetings with these people. Not necessarily chance meetings, but one or two meetings with these people. So they don't know them. Um, and so therefore, for them to then say that they know exactly the person who killed them, to me, doesn't make sense. Okay. Well, I mean, this is this is definitely fascinating discussion and i'd like to keep it going a little bit in the second hour before we get into our harry potter discussion what we're going to do is we're really going to freak the crap out of everybody here and then we're going to bring them back down with uh (laughs) something a little bit more tame and uh we'll we'll do all that coming up in the next few minutes but uh chris it must drive your family crazy to to have you watching these shows and you know, reading books about serial killer. I mean, they are they starting to get a little bit worried about you. Are they starting to figure that maybe you're trying to figure out the way to do this without getting caught. <laughs> you know, it, it's. Um, I remember this kid uh, Scott Myers, <clears throat> who, you know, we were talking about Satanism once, and we were kids. We were, you know, like maybe ten and eleven because he was a little older than me. And he said, "We need to stop talking about this. It makes me want to do things." Um, and so I think there is that fear, especially because I'm submerged in these things sometimes where my wife is like, I'm just going to sleep on the couch. I'm just going to lock the door and uh, put the knives on my side of the door for tonight. Um, so I think <laughs> there's a little bit of that. But, but honestly, I think, which once again, we can call this myth too if you want, um, you know, there's this illogical fear that talking about these things um, invites serial killers into your life. Um, as if there's an active serial killer in my area or in, you know, the, the spooky South Coast listenership who's listening tonight who's like, well, I'm going to teach you what serial killers really are. Yeah, Which, once again, the level of sophistication and, you know, a lack of knowledge of really what is victimology when it comes to serial killers, that now they're going to come and get me. All right, well, we have about two minutes here, but we have a call, so let's go to the phones. Uh, good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Chris Balzano. Should be on the Caller. air. 
Hello, do you have a question? Well, we did it right. We we activated the phones right. I guess they just must not have hung on. All right, well, we'll take calls uh, coming up in the second hour. The numbers are one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. You can also email us spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com, and you can also jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at spookysouthcoast.com. And uh, I do have chat room access tonight, so I can see what's going on in the chat room. I guess, I guess last night, uh, last week, we you know we couldn't see what was going on, so they had free reign to say whatever they wanted about us. But tonight, you know, they have to be a little bit more. They behaved. have free reign all the time. That's true. I kept them rain. I, I kept them under control. Don't worry about it. Kept on. I'm worried that you're the biggest instigator in there. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. All right. So we'll continue the discussion uh, about serial killers and about the murder myths because I want to know what some more of these myths are. I, I'm just shooting some out off the top of my head of what I think might be, and I'm sure Chris has compiled quite the list. So we'll talk about that uh, at the beginning of the second hour, and then in the bottom of the second hour, we'll talk Harry Potter. I've got some guests here in the studio who are going to give us their review of the new movie, which I think is called Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Also winning the Guinness Book of World Records for longest movie title ever. And uh, so we'll get their review of that. Uh, They saw it in 3D. And I'm guessing that the 3D experience went better than they thought it was going to. Yeah, so uh, we'll talk about that and more. And Chris is going to give us some insight into Harry Potter. And also we'll make the connection between Matt Moniz's serial killers and Harry Potter. supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the science advisor himself, Matt Moniz, who's filling in for the silent assassin. I'm so used to saying the silent assassin, Matt Costa, after my own name, because he's always here. But uh, he's taking a rare night off, a well-deserved night off, and uh, Moniz is stepping behind the board to take care of things, and hey, we're figuring out so far. We're still here. We're on the air. (laughs) Nobody's come and thrown us off yet, but I think that's just because Pete's on vacation. I think if he was home, we would have already gotten the hook by now. But uh, welcome back to the show. Our guest tonight is Chris Balzano. We've been talking about the murder myth. We're talking about serial killers, and we're going to get into that for just a little bit more. And then we'll talk Harry Potter. If you're watching on Spooky TV, you'll see our guests are here in the studio with us. Uh, We have my brother Mike and my sister-in-law Meredith. They are the Harry Potter ringers that I brought in to talk about Harry Potter later on in the show. Because I don't know anything about it, so they're going to handle all that for me. But uh, let's get right back into the discussion about the murder myth with Chris Balzano. And uh, so we will bring him back on right now. He should already be on. Ah, there he is. Ah, beautiful. Usually here. I forgot to hit that button. <laughs> All right. So, Chris, uh, we were talking about some of these murder myths, and I was throwing a few out there that you know uh, I thought might be myths. But what are some of the other ones that you've discovered in your research? Well, before I before I get into that, I just want to say really quickly that um, I misquoted earlier when I said point zero zero two percent. Okay. Serial murderers or serial killers, killings, account for roughly 1% to 2% of um, murders in the United States. Um, and so 
that number hasn't dramatically changed. We were just talking over the break in the chat room about whether or not, for example, the influence of the Internet or whether, uh, you know, community apathy, <clears throat> you know, has some kind of impact um, on those numbers. And it hasn't risen dramatically since the inception of the Internet or, you know, as society kind of falls apart and we're less aware of the, 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 the environment around us. What that number represents, that 0.002%, that is the percentage of overall Americans who have the risk of being killed by a serial killer. So imagine that the murder rate is approximately um, point, well, it's basically one in every 20,000 people in the United States will be killed, which, once again, while, you know, it sounds like when you say the number of people who are killed, if you say it that way, like one in 20,000 people. So how many of us right now could fill a room with 20,000 people or could fill a stadium with 20,000 people that we know? Yeah, it's like one one person at every Celtics game. Right. <laughs> there you go. You know, and that's, that, those are the odds of someone being murdered. And if you then take 1% of that, that would be basically one in every 2 million people in the United States you know, will fall victim of a, of a serial killer. Um, which, if you take it, uh, you know, into, if you take into account, you know, how many people are in the United States, but all these things, those numbers go down dramatically if you think of, so you take that murder rate, say one in every 200,000, and that's murders, so straight murders. Take out things like vehicular manslaughter. Um, take out things like um, gang-related crime, which really have, you know, take, take out of the fact Take, you know, take out of that, um, for example, people who are killed by family members. If you take, because most of the time, almost always, serial killers, while at some point they might turn on their family, usually at the beginning, um, don't hunt within their own house, if you will. Um, then the, the risks that you have of ever being approached by someone randomly who wants to kill you is... Is, it's improbable. It, it's impossible to actually figure the numbers out, but it would be probably because I looked just at, at, at gang-related crime and I looked at um, uh, uh, family annihilators and even just family people who kill family members. Um, the number is, is almost half a million. Um, you know, one out of every half a million people. So if you kind of carry that out once again, it's, these are like ridiculous numbers. You most likely will never know anyone who knows someone who was killed by a serial killer. Well, you know, and I was going to say, of course, those odds sharply increase if the guy next door to you decides to become a serial killer. But will it? I mean, obviously, if the guy next door becomes a serial killer and he racks up, now keep in mind, 200 people, and he racks up 10, well, really, the numbers aren't, you know, obvious. <laughs> you know, they're like, yes, and that's, that's what people live by, and that's how the myth grows, and that's how these stories and these urban legends can develop, because, you know, you throw out that line that which is actually not oddly enough that common, but it sounds common. He seemed perfectly normal. It's just well, it could be the guy next door who's, who's trying to kill you. When the majority of the time, um, the serial killers uh, who are out there, especially the disorganized serial killers, are on people's radars. They're people who, uh, from their own, um, because of their own disorders or because of their own personality flaws or own, um, you know. Uh, mental disabilities, can't relate to people uh, and don't relate to people and seem creepy. Um, and so 
And so the the fact that you need to be aware that everyone you ever meet has the potential to, you know, kill you and eat you, um, while sounding logical when you don't phrase it that way, is actually not logical. It's as surprising, I guess, to some people, those numbers, as when they find out that, you know, their their chances of winning the lottery upon buying a lottery ticket don't really increase that much over if they hadn't bought a lottery ticket. Or if they buy two or three, well, I bought five. Obviously, that, that's good. that's so much more better. Yes, more better. And and of course, the mother the the argument that mothers will give is, well, someone has to win the lottery. Well, someone has to be victim to the serial killer, or else there wouldn't be serial killers in this world. Um, and and that's kind of the the the, the driving force behind why these stories stay with us, and why kind of these um, these urban legends and these stories are allowed to to be given kind of fuel. Well, what are what are some of these other myths that you've discovered? Um, well, I, I the, myth, the myths aren't really solidified as much as it is kind of like the the just um, an abstract like you know, right, there's like no, the hard, no, abstract, no hard and fast rules like you know uh, you know no you haven't been able to discredit these theories that we hear put out there all the time necessarily. Well, if, I mean, if you look at it this way, okay, so. One of the one of the great urban legends, and there's different variations of it, is of people being killed by serial killers in their dorm rooms. Um, and this legend existed. It kind of came to full kind of realization, kind of got into the the subconscious. It got began getting circulated a lot in the late 40s and early 50s when females started going off to school because. What it really is, is it's kind of like you're letting your daughter out. You know, before then, you let your daughter out of your house when she was going to be married. And she was, you know, and she, in theory, she picked a man who was going to protect her and she was going to stay, you know, within his kind of, uh, his sphere of influence. And instead, now people were being sent off to college. They could do anything they wanted. And granted, there were housewives, I mean, you know, house mothers in, in these colleges and things like that. But really, you were throwing them figuratively to the wolves. Uh, and so these these urban legends began to develop around, you know, the classic one, aren't you glad you didn't turn out the light? And if you want me to explain any of these legends, as if they're not, you think some of them aren't, aren't, aren't as known to people, I'll explain them a little bit. Um, or the, scrat- the, 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 the scratching door, where, you know, and there's two different variations of it, but basically the, the, um, the, the friend of kind of the main character of the story, goes out with her boyfriend. The dorm is empty except for this one girl. She hears a scratching on the door. She hides herself, and it's her roommate who's been killed by a serial killer trying to get in, like, and get help. And because she doesn't do anything, the girl dies. Legends like this have allowed us to think that, and this ties very much into the paranormal side of things, because these stories get kind of um, put on to disturbances in schools. And they kind of become associated with ghosts that might be in a college dorm because, well, don't you know what happened there? Someone came and they killed and then they were on the wall. Aren't you glad I didn't turn on the light? Um, there are very few, if any, murders committed by serial killers on college campuses. So that would be a myth, for example. Now, as I've already said, 40s, 50s, this goes well before Bundy, who kind of had his final act in you know the FSU dorms, so there are exceptions to all these rules, but for the most part, serial killers are not stalking your college dorm. 
No, that's just creepy paranormal radio hosts like Matt Moniz. <laughs> Although he calls it an associate professorship. <laughs> <laughs> Tutoring. Uh, if you have any questions for Chris Balzano regarding uh, serial killers or murder myths, you, go, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or post a question in the chat room. And, and Mike and Meredith, feel free, if you have any questions, to jump in as well. But uh, it seems to me, Chris, that uh, the more we glamorize the idea of the serial killer in in media, uh, the more that it seems to encourage these types. Is, is that a myth, or is that is there truth to that? I think it um, creates, uh, once again, in the organized serial killer, I think it creates a stylization. Um, I think it gives them something to look towards. You know, but there there has never been, for example a psychiatrist who was as well integrated into society as Hannibal Lecter. Never happened. Now, of course, we can go back to maybe some royalty, uh, especially, well, obviously over in Europe and, 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 uh, and parts of, of uh, Eurasia that, um, that kind of were royalty who were accused of being serial killers in their days, or, or not in their day, but looking back, you go like, oh, that's a serial killer. Um, but one of the things, you know, so... A serial killer looking to Hannibal Lecter, for example, as an inspiration, will never be as smart as Hannibal Lecter because Hannibal Lecter is the, the product of uh, a really creative mind who can let all the tumblers fall in place and create this mix of different types of mindsets that serial killers might have to create, like I used the term before, the uber serial killer. Um, I think that, I think that there might be copycats, um, but once again, if you're copycatting, the thing that might be molded in that is the way that you execute, but not necessarily the rise and fall of your own kind of need to kill. Um, and so, therefore, it doesn't necessarily make new serial killers or make someone a serial killer, um, but rather um, rather ends up kind of you know molding how they go out and do their business. Well, before we uh, transition from serial killers to Harry Potter, you know, a natural, seamless transition, I'll be, I'm sure. Uh, before we do that, uh, let me ask you, in your research and your study, uh, who is the most fascinating serial killer uh, that you've discovered? I mean, not necessarily, you know, hey, who's your favorite? <laughs> you know, which serial killer would you most want to be like, Chris Balzano? Uh, but, you know, which one do you find, whether it be his methodology, whether it be his... his uh, you know, mental makeup. Who who is it that that draws your interest the most? Okay, so I've got two kind of well, three different answers to that. My the, the one I'm scared of the most is the Night Stalker, um, because the Night Stalker had no victimology. Oh yeah, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, he died. <laughs> the Night Stalker. Night Stalker's still alive, brother. No, Kolchak. No, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Good series. Good series. Oh oh, you mean the serial killer, the Night Stalker? Okay. Yeah. He's Although, um, you know, according to uh, Jackie Barrett, there are cults that are still very much active that he has a hand in, um, which, of course, just made me not sleep for nights because I already have a, 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 a very strange, irrational fear that he's coming to get me. Well, you've, you've had uh, some pretty, uh, not, not to blow up your spot here on, on, you know, international radio, but you, you've had some dealings with people in the past who have, you know, sent you creepy things and... You know, yeah, the, yeah the, and that's, that that's element is aware of your presence, just yes, as you are of theirs. <laughs> there's yeah. one serial. Ki- 
I was going to say, there's one serial killer that you haven't mentioned, but was the most prolific in the United States, Howard Holmes Hatch, or otherwise known as Henry Mudgett. Uh, that's not the guy from uh, Chicago, is it? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and and we were talking once again in the chat room about uh, motive, because uh, someone asked. Uh, I think it was uh, someone asked whether, and I didn't quite understand the question, but it was. If a person is a gang member and they killed a whole bunch of people in their house, um, would they be a serial killer? And the first thing was, well, did they kill them all at the same time? Because then definitely not. They wouldn't be a serial killer because there has to be a pulling off period. But the other thing that's really sticky seems to be motive. Because, for example, um, you know, if someone, if someone's motive is money and the constantly getting of money is that person a serial killer, um, and so there's this really kind of gray, which is where sometimes the FBI and other organizations differ, and even people, organi- even like structurally within the FBI, um, for example, profilers would say anyone who's motivated by money is not a serial killer. Yeah, well, um, like a mafia hitman wouldn't be a serial killer. Pirates. Well, that's but yes, but but consider I, mean, I can't remember his real name, but the person whose nickname is the Ice Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, who wrote some? Who wrote a book? Uh, and they did a documentary on him. Doogie? He would be a serial killer because the um, the murder, the, the money was insignificant to him. So even though he was a hitman who was getting a lot of money for doing what he was doing, he was doing the murders because he was doing the murders. Mm-hmm. Um, but for so, for example, like um, the, I always forget his name, but the man that you're talking about out in Chicago seems to be at some point motivated by the money. Um, especially given that he, he was raised poor, um, you know, he saw some absolutely horrible things having to do with, especially rural life. And then as he grew up, he was kind of using this seductive nature of himself to put people in positions to get what he wants. He so was he money and power. Yes, he was a doctor, and uh, he got his doctorate in uh, University of Vermont, and he was a physician, and he killed close to what it's estimated about hundred different people. And he took right. the money from them. Uh, this is during same time as uh, the Jack the Ripper Fair. cases, and uh, the Chicago War- for Chicago World's Fair was happening right. at that same time. So, if if you wanted my non-professional, non-doctorate in in criminology, I would say the moment he buys that house across the street uh, and he starts redesigning, you know, he had a, a small pharmacy and he bought the big abandoned building across the street and basically turned it into this whole huge torture house. Yeah, the castle. The moment he did that, right, now he's moving away from just killing to the money now becomes secondary to the power that he's getting from the actual murders themselves. And, and he had enough money to sustain himself. As I was say, who who is your other serial killer, your other favorite? <laughs> I um I would have to I would have to say that I love the fact that even though the body count is small, that people are still obsessed with Jack the Ripper. Um, and so I love the I love hearing the modern day kind of uh, forensic um, and and psychological evaluations of the Ripper because we have so little to go on and so little to know what is real of the evidence, what is not real of the evidence, and we have you know very hard time understanding the context of those murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of the people who might have committed, the person who might have, or people who might have committed those murders, that it's sometimes laughable and yet always draws me in. Um, but for me, the number one is always Son of Sam, um, because I am 
uh, as you probably know, fascinated by the mythology of things. Um, and the mythology, even if you take the conspiracy uh, aside from it, and just the mythology of the murders themselves, and the mythology of what supposedly he had created inside of his mind or was being fed externally, um, there is so much rich information in there that just begs like an evaluation of the human mind, an evaluation of the culture, and it's kind of like this this never-ending, I can make connections between all these different things. When you then throw in this supposed connection to a larger criminal organization um, and, and how he might have been just a kind of a, a footman for for this larger um, kind of, you know, organized serial killer or organized chaos uh, uh, company, if you will, um, that makes it even that much richer for me. So like it's something... Son of Sam is, and my dad worked on The Son of Sam, too, so it also I also have that kind of connection to it. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like something that our content director could put together an entire show to discuss. If the host and producers would like the content director to do so, he could. Absolutely. Uh, well, I think uh, my dog's telling me that we have to take a break. So, uh, that, that joke just died. <laughs> that joke died a horrible death like as if Berkowitz did it himself. I said my dog. I, anyway, uh, all right. Well, we're going to take a break. When we <laughs> when we come back, we'll talk. I'm sorry. We'll talk uh, about Harry Potter uh, with our guest Chris Balzano and also our special guest here in the studio. And uh, also, uh, you can jump in and call in during the course of the discussion at one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred or email us spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. We'll be right back. We'll we'll cheer you up and we'll have a little bit more fun discussion before we put you to bed. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. That's all right. We can't be expected to know what's in the uh, arrays there. That's uh, Matt Costa's job. He'll be welcome back with open arms next week. Uh, but for now, you've got me, Tim Weisberg. You've got him, the science advisor, Matt Moniz. And uh, we are forcing our way through this program. And we've only got about uh, about 25 minutes left before we can really screw things up. So hopefully. And uh, Silent Assassin, if you're listening. Hopefully. <laughs> if you're listening, everything already moved to Sunday on the computer, so hopefully we can just go back and start it over. But expect a phone call shortly after midnight. All right. Well, uh, we have Chris Balzano, our show's content director, on the phone with us. Uh, and we also have, in the studio, we have my sister-in-law, Meredith, and we have my brother, Mike. And uh, they are big Harry Potter fans. And i got to ask you guys what you thought of the big finale. Mike, what were, you, what were your thoughts? It was epic. <laughs> I mean, was it everything that you expected that it was going to be going into it? And more. Yeah, definitely and more. Well, I mean, what were you hoping for? I mean, because you read the book already, I assume. Yes. So did it kind of meet your expectations? You know, a lot of times we say that books don't, uh, movies don't live up to the books. Is is, is that the case with this? I, felt, I strongly feel that it actually exceeded my expectations. Um, it was a lot better than I was like, when you read it, you you know, you visual it. But then when you actually see it in a big screen, it's a lot better. Uh, was there a, a lot of, um, I don't know, kind of open ends to the story? Did they, did they wrap everything up nicely? I believe there could be another one if, I want, if they wanted to make one. And that's, that's the rumor, uh, Meredith. I'm sure that you've heard the rumor that they might be adding more books to the series and I then therefore did. more movies a little bit later on. But yep. 
Now, your concern was you didn't know if you wanted to see it in 3D. You were worried that the 3D might actually distract from enjoying the movie. I did, but it was actually... Um I don't want to know if I don't know if it would be better because I didn't see it in 2D, but it was my first 3D and it was pretty awesome. <laughs> and it didn't jump out at you like it you did not. It was, it was just like surrounding you, and so it looked like you were in it. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. You kind of came a little bit late to the Harry Potter I stuff. I did only within the last year, um, and when the la- if within the last year I've read all of them and seen all of them multiple times. <laughs> it's been kind of like a sick obsession for me recently. But that must have been good for you then because you don't have to wait for the next part to come out. You know, you get to kind of it watch them one It good because I, ha- I didn't have to wait, but now it's like over. I didn't have that whole, you know, grew up with it. And now it's like, I did it all and it's done. So now it's like, <laughs> I hope there's more. Yeah, now it's like so. it's like somebody who watched all six Star Wars movies or, right you know, now. all four Indiana Jones. And, and Chris, you know, I know that you've been a Harry Potter fan for a long time as well. I was going to say, are all six seasons of Lost in one summer? You didn't have to wait. Hey, you know, that was your fault. You know, I was, <laughs> I was trying to get you on that bandwagon a lot earlier. Yeah, well, no, you weren't. You never mentioned the word Lost. What are you talking, yeah. are you talking about? Have you lost your mind, Balzano? That was it. Um, I, I <laughs> enjoyed, Costa I enjoyed and I talked about Lost all the time on the show, and then all of a sudden, one day, you said you were watching it, and I was like, oh, my God, finally somebody else is watching it. All right, anyway, all right. go ahead. That would imply that I was listening to the show, but okay. yes, I was too busy reading my Harry Potter books. Um, yeah, I, I think like a lot of people, I, um, and we discuss this a lot because a lot of people chose Harry Potter books for the big book report project that we had this year. And I think a lot of people, um, kind of came on after the fourth book, which is a little before the first movie. Um, and I think that you can really actually even probably split Harry Potter into the first four books, uh, and, and, and the, the, the last three. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been... I've been involved with it. I've been reading them since that, since kind of like that fourth book. So I think 2000 is when I first I bought them for my wife for the Christmas of 99, I believe, and, uh, and I've been reading it since then. Well, I have to admit, never read any of the books. Uh, I think my wife read the first one or two yeah. of them. And uh, I, I started watching the first movie, fell asleep. You know, it's kind of like the same way I am with Lord of the Rings. Started watching it, fell asleep. I don't blame the movie, you know, I... You gotta skip the um, first one. I'm a narcoleptic. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it happens. The, the first two are like the hardest. Read ones the to get first through. book, but the first movie, it's. But I, I did find that you know the the bits and pieces that I caught as my son was watching it, the bits and pieces that I caught like on TV when it's on ABC Family or whatever, you know, it, it definitely all seems time. to have a little yeah all the time. It definitely does seem to have a little bit of something for everybody, and uh, is that what's appealing? You know, Chris being a teacher, is that what appeals uh, to the younger generation? The fact that it has a, a something for everybody, pretty much. Yeah, and I think that, that one of the, the one of the benefits of the book, which I actually consider a bit of the downfall of it, or, or, or one of the bad things about it, is that the language um, and the plot <clears throat> are really simplistic, um, and so you can get involved and just read the story. Like, there's not a lot of sophisticated language, um, and as the books go on, that gets a slightly better, um, but but never kind of overshoots its core audience, which would kind of be whatever year Harry's in, if not a little bit lower. Um, but I think that one of the things is that it is so accessible. And, and you know, for all that's great about it, and I do think that they're great, mainly because, you know, so many people have read books that are Harry Potter books that wouldn't normally read. And that got them to go on to other books. Um, but there's nothing really new um, in, in, in any of the Harry Potter books. And so part of the genius of, of J.K. Rowling is the 
her ability to borrow from all these different kind of mythologies and add this kind of twist to it, her twist to it, um, and try to kind of, um, you know, uh, add these kind of, you know, even the wording of things and the, and the, the naming of things is, is very much like a tip of the hat to other mythologies that have been successful and are, and are useful, and it's kind of juggling those is what's really good. And so it does offer something for, for everybody. Well, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, because we have kind of, in, in my opinion here, two different types of readers with my brother and my sister-in-law and how they, how they approach things. Uh, Mike, you have always been somebody that I've known to read, you know, more nonfiction stuff. Uh, you know, I remember when we used to trade, you know, wrestler autobiographies back and forth and, you know, you would read books about bands and things like that. And it, this was really the first fiction that I saw you get into. What was it that drew you in about, about the Harry Potter series? Basically, I was watching ABC Family one day, and the movie was on, and I was like, there has to be more than what they you know, teach you in the movie. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it left so many unanswered questions for me, so I picked up the first book, read it in a week, picked up the second book, read it in a week. And then, Considering the size of the books, that's, that's pretty impressive you know, to read them that And then quickly. I sat there, like everybody else, at midnight outside the bookstore, waiting for it to come out. The day it came out, got my copy at 3 a.m., <laughs> And so. we're, you were done with it by 8, 8, 8 p.m. So, and uh, Meredith, I know with you, it's it's a little bit different because you read all the time. I, mean, I haven't actually. <laughs> like I used to read so much when I was younger, and then I don't know. I just stopped reading, and now that I've gotten Harry Potter, it's like I'm can't stop. I read them all back to back. Took me a couple months, but there are so many loose ends that they don't go into detail in the movies. The movies are great, but. If you don't, if you haven't read the books and you've only seen the movies, there's so many unanswered questions that you don't know. So that's what keeps you interested: is that everything ties together. And and while while you're on the show here, we'll embarrass you a little bit. Going back, oh, I don't know, like over ten years now, it was actually you found a book on your bookshelf that had some haunted places. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you and I hopped into my seventy nine Plymouth Volari. <laughs> we went to Sandwich. Drove to Sandwich and hung the outside the uh, what the Dillingham house. Yep, the Dillingham house. And when the curtain we saw the curtain flutter <laughs> and <laughs> Took off running. That might actually count as that my was first like thirteen. Yeah. Ghost ghost experience. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it definitely seems like there's been something that drew everybody in now w- with me, Chris, you know, I, I went through a similar thing with, you know, I've read everything Stephen King has ever written and I did the same type of thing recently with the dark tower books. I'd read them as they come out, but then last summer when they released what was then supposed to be the final chapter, I went bang, bang, bang and read them all right in a row. And I had like the same type of experience where I started to see, you know, the th- different themes that were running through them and the different influences they've had. Now I can look at something like the work of our friend Bill Gothier, uh, like with Alice on the Shelf, and see all the little homages and nods to the Dark right. Tower books that appear in there. And it seems like we're seeing that with Harry Potter across all, all, all of mainstream pop culture. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is so much of, of uh, Potterology that has just become pop culture. You know what I'm saying? So you can say something like, you know, you made a joke about muggles before. You can say muggles, and the majority of the people that are in the room, regardless of, of their age, unless they're really, really old, and who cares about them, um, <laughs> knows what you're talking about, you know? And you can actually make a Quidditch joke, and, and people know what you're talking about. But also, you know, the, just the whole kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the characters and kind of the plots and the, the, um, some of the moments that are in there, you know? And, it, and it's... It's funny because I must have been sitting in front of the only people um, in America who went to go see this who have not had, like, any exposure to Harry Potter. And they were so talkative, and I almost, 
you know, performed one of the one of the uh, one of the deadly curses on them because I was so, ta- like freaked out by them. Wait a minute, are you talking about the current movie or when you went to see like the first movie? No, when I went to see the current movie. So somebody decided to go see a sequel to the final chapter of the films, having never seen anything with Harry Potter before? The questions that they were asking each other and asking out loud to the audience, hoping that the audience would answer the questions for them, implied that they had not seen any of the movies or read any of the books. Wow. I, w- I wish I just had like money to burn like that to just go in. <laughs> That's what we call in, in the world of literature, what, in media res? <laughs> Where you're just coming into the middle of the story and you have no idea what's going on? Right, right. At the end of the story, right? I was like... And, and it's kind of like, you know, realize that like, you could have gone to see Mr. Popper and Tabwins and you probably would have, you know, enjoyed it a lot more. Or, like, isn't the Green Lantern or something? Like, why would you come see a movie that has, you know, you know, probably 10,000 pages and, and, you know, probably pretty close to 13, 14, 15 hours worth of movie? Why would you go, why, why would you, you know, not invest that? Like, go to another theater. And my my theory? Not. My theory? Just not. Like, shut up. I'm going to throw this out there, Moniz. You can probably back me up. What it was is they were high, and they figured that would be the coolest 3D experience. I, I was just going to say bong hits, probably. Yep. They're like, oh, yeah, Harry Potter, man. That's going to be awesome in 3D. Except it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and it wasn't even IMAX. <laughs> but we're talking so, about yeah. Florida, right? We're, yeah. Well, there you go, yeah. So you didn't happen to go to uh, Lakeland to see the movie, did you? <laughs> it's a long-standing joke between me That's and That's a Lakeland perplex, yeah. Which uh, which would only have one screen, right? And it would be projected on the back of somebody's trailer. So, right. All right, but uh, I mean, is there a lot of recurring kind of themes that you see in the Harry Potter stories that are you know indicative of other, I don't know, kind of coming of age stories? I mean, besides the the different conceits that Rowling used in the stories, but I mean, is isn't it? Just basically the story of somebody who's trying to not only find their way to fit in, but then they excel. Is this to me or to you? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about the, one of the interesting things about the Harry Potter films is that they, I mean, are classic, you know, Joseph Campbell analysis, you know, journey of a hero. Um, so each one acts as its own kind of story arc within that mythology. Um, and I can be a real dork and break that stuff down for you, but it's kind of like the classic journey of a hero to gain something, you know what I'm saying, from point A to point B. And one of the beauties of the story is is that the, 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 the stories all together form one larger arc. So you have all of these kind of like mini stories that within them form like the whole journey of the hero of Harry Potter. I mean, and everything is, you know, everything is a point to something else. You know, Dumbledore is... Um, is Obi Wan Kenobi? Um, he's um, he's Merlin. He's um, he's uh, even though Lord of the Rings is on my TV right now, I can't remember what his name is. Um, Gandalf. They're all the same character. Uh, and they all fulfill the same character, the same job for the hero. So, I mean, all of Harry Potter kind of draws upon that same kind of mythology. I think I just did a bad thing. I accidentally just restarted my computer. So, Spooky TV. <laughs> nice for for the old classic people like me, he's a Daedalus. Uh, Dumbledore. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, was there... Uh, I, I mean, you mentioned the Merlin kind of comparison. I just watched a special on uh, the Smithsonian Channel, which is like my new favorite channel, by the way, <laughs> uh, about Merlin. 
and it talks a lot about the the connotation between him and Dumbledore. Dumbledore. And, <laughs> and, it, and it seems like uh, that's a character that is prevalent throughout you know mythology literature. It's, it's similar to uh, what's his name from Lord of the Rings. Gandalf. Gandalf. I've never seen Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Sorry, I know. I know it sounds like I'm trying to play a cool card here and and not know about this stuff, but I just I don't. Especially know. your cool card is just saying what I just said, but that's okay. You go ahead, boy. But <laughs> but when we see these these recurring characters, there's a reason for that. It's it's because uh, there has to be uh, that automatic recognition w- with such a character. There has to be that automatic connection that's made with that character uh, because it, for one thing, it saves a lot of time in the storytelling. Uh, but for another thing, it gives people that familiar reason to launch into a, a new journey. Well, it also fulfills the need for the hero of the story, um, because so many of these quests, uh, you know, so many of these developments, so many of these kind of origin legends of heroes <clears throat> need that kind of older influence who has the magical um, thing that the the main character, that the hero needs, um, possesses, and to some small degree that they then bring out with them. Um, and so that's the role that those older gentlemen, magical gentlemen especially, fulfill for those people. So, for example, <clears throat> Luke Skywalker, you know, always has it in him as everyone else for, you know, a generation had it in them to be a Jedi and just didn't become one. Um, he had that in them, but he needed that mentor. He needed that person with the magical touch who is almost always destined to die. Um because their job is to pass the old <clears throat> on to the next generation. And then the implication is, is that then that next generation becomes the mentor for the one after it. And so you need that kind of person for the, for the, for the hero to have. Otherwise, how does he gain that knowledge of the old? How does he unlock that thing within it? And so Dumbledore does that with Harry. Harry always will be a wizard. Whether he ever went to Hogwarts, whether he ever got training, he would always have the wizard inside of him. Partly because of you know his blood, but partly because of his spirit as well, and so it takes someone such as Dumbledore to, along with everyone else that's in his life, but that Dumbledore really becomes that mentor of bringing not only the magic but the magic within his soul. I am sounding like a real dork right now, but whatever, um, to bring that out because that's the role that those people fill. Uh, when you have a, a character though that's become so iconic and become kind of I don't know, idealized by a lot of people. Can you make everybody happy if there has to be an ending? I mean, we, we've seen so many things that come to a close uh, in the last 10 years that have run the gamut from the Sopranos ending, which left so many people angry and upset, to something like Lost, which we did a whole episode pretty much just on the ending of that show. Uh, is there a way, and I'll, I'll go around the table with it, starting with you, Chris, but uh, is there a way that you can please everybody with an ending? Um, and here's why I think Lost did it well. Mythology is not made for us to understand. It's made for us to kind of draw upon when we need it. Um, the best elements of a story, the ones that exist beyond the plot, are there for us to draw upon, to quote, to turn back to after the story is over. The plot will end. It has to end. Right? Even if they, that ending is kind of invented inside of our heads afterwards, built on clues, like, say, for example, The Sopranos. We need that ending, but if a story is really good, that mythology kind of stays with us, becomes part of kind of what we do going forward. And so, therefore, it shouldn't ever end because it's always evolving within us. 
Mike, for you, I mean, was it a, a satisfying ending if this is the ending, if there is nothing else? I believe they did it the best they possibly could. Uh, I don't agree that it should have ended, you know, you know, the final battle, the whole nine yards. I think they should have, you know, left it open to continue it. Uh, the way that it was set up, you know, it can go on as, a, as Harry is an adult, you know, as, you know, everyone hopes, you know, for example, for a fourth Back to the Future movie or a third <laughs> Ghostbusters, you know, they want to keep those things that you remember and that you agreed, you know, that you liked when you were younger, keep it going. Mm-hmm. But isn't part of that, and, and Meredith will ask you this too, isn't part of that the fact that when people uh, become so attached to something, though, like it, it can't possibly end the way that you want it to necessarily because you have your own ideas of what you want to see, and if it does end, you, wanna, you have your own ideas of how it could continue on after that. Yeah, I mean, everybody, if she makes a new book, is thinking of totally different things of how she could possibly go on. Um, you know, who she could involve in it, if it's just going to be his children, if it's going to be him again. So she did leave it kind of open-ended. I don't think everybody's going to be happy with the ending. Nobody will be. Um, I was happy with it. You know, I'm glad he lived. But, I mean, I'm sure there were some people that was hoping <laughs> it kind of went the other spoil, way. <laughs> spoiler spoil alert. <laughs> but most people know, you know, that he has grows up, has children. So obviously he lives. But well, I'm sure uh, it didn't make everybody happy. Well, uh, at least, at the very least, it, it, it brings it to a close in a way that, you know, the, the actors and the people involved in making the film can feel like they've wrapped everything up. Because I think if you're the kid that had to play Harry Potter for the last, you know, 12 <laughs> years, you're, you're happy to see it end and you can move on to something else. But now you're pigeonholed as Harry Potter, which is awesome because now you get to experience what, like, Mark Hamill did, you know, where now you can never be anything else. So, good thing you made all that money when you did, Dan, because you're done. And it's also, you know, and, and of course, uh, Elijah Wood would be someone who has kind of broken that mold because, I mean, he is Frodo, but he's picked such odd roles after it that he's really kind of broken that, that Frodo curse. And you will, I think. He's, I, I'm not commenting, obviously, on his new show, which seems kind of wacky. I haven't seen it yet. But, oh, it's amazing. Uh, you have to see it. <laughs> It? Are you joking? Are you being sarcastic? No, it, it is awesome. I, okay, I went I into it one. fully preparing to hate it, but it is hysterical. But, um, you know, and it's important to remember that for J.K. Rowling, it had to end because she started with the ending. So she actually knew what the final scene was before she knew anything about Harry himself. So the very first thing she wrote, other than I think the fir- very first line of the book, which was, uh, you know, something like, under the stairs lived a, a kid with a mark on his head or something like that. She had the last line of that book written before she had almost anything else. So she knew that there was an ending and it was all building up to it. So so it's one of those odd cases where, you know, the, the writer, you know, seven and thousands of pages ahead of, ahead of schedule knows kind of how it's going to end. It's all building up to that point. I wish we could do that with our book. But... Uh... <laughs> I'll say I'll I'll say this though that my my best guess would be that there's going to be the opportunity for the Harry Potter universe to become more like a Star Trek or a Star Wars universe where it's going to continue on in some form of fashion. You know, now we'll get into even if Rowling doesn't write the books herself, you're going to get into you know offshoot stories, continued mythology stories, and I think you'll see more of that. And you know, as long as she keeps getting you know twenty five thirty percent of everything that comes out, I don't think she'll have a problem with it. Well, I think you can even do kind of like a uh, I heard that Stephanie Myers is, is uh, you know, going, trying to go back, and one of the rumors is going back and rewriting the um, the whole series from a different point of view. 
you know, so so maybe that might be something that she's going to explore is like, you know, how how did someone who's on the periphery of this or even on the bad side of this, how do they live through the, you know, the Harry Potter years? A Potter years. <laughs> Can I say one thing that really aggravated me about the movie? Sure, go ahead. Okay. So they're talking about, like, the wands and the length of the wands, and they did this actually a few times in the movie, and they're referring to everything in English measurement. So they said, like, the wands were a certain amount of inches. That really aggravated me and threw me off for, like, a good half hour. <laughs> I'm like, these people are all British. You know what I'm saying? It takes place, you know, basically in, you know, in, in parts of England. All the characters are, are British in one way, shape, or form. Like, they never even acknowledge about the whole series anything having to do with America. Right? They have all these wizards that come from other parts of the world, but no one that comes from America. That's true. Like, There's why no, like, wizarding, America, wizarding school from America. <laughs> Exactly right. Like, it's all why like Bulgaria, a, France. Yeah, why is it a quad, you know, uh, uh, quad just, wizard tournament? You know, with bringing the people from America, it aggravated me. I think we should start one in Lakeland, Florida. <laughs> there you go. I think there's a, I think there's enough people practicing something in Lakeland that you might be able to get that started. <laughs> Although most of the time, it's usually uh, all right. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. All right, <laughs> that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks for Chris for joining us. Thanks to Mike and Meredith for stopping in and sharing their Harry Potter expertise. And Chris, do we know what's uh, going on next week? Uh, yeah, no, not really. Okay, sounds like maybe Psychic Readings with Tiffany. <laughs> so uh, tune into her show, uh, Spirit Connections with Tiffany Rice. It'll be on Tuesday at 9 on Spooky TV and plenty more to come. There'll be a show next week. We just don't know what it is yet. So until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, for Mike, for Meredith, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.